Our text this morning is Psalm 7. We've been going through the Psalms over the summer. We started with Psalm 1, and the plan is to keep going until the fall, and we'll get back into our series in the book of Ephesians. So for the summer, we're in the Psalms, Psalm 7 today. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you that we're coming up as a church now on the one-year anniversary, which is really exciting. So a year ago, we started Grace Bible Church by the grace of God, and it's been a wonderful year. And so on the 22nd of August, you can see this in your bulletin too, that there will be uh, our first annual picnic. So we'll have church as normal in the morning, and then we've reserved Pioneer Park here in Monticello, and we'll celebrate together. And I really encourage you to prioritize this time. It's going to be a great time of celebration, fellowship, and just being together as the body of Christ and, and celebrating the faithfulness of God to us. So look forward to that and hope that you can make it to that. As we're going to look at Psalm 7 this morning, one of the dominant themes in this psalm is the righteousness of God. David calls God the righteous judge. Now, sometimes we can get hung up on words if we are less familiar or just don't know what it is. So when we hear the word righteousness, we should think of that as God's right doing. He can only do what is right. And of course, we know from reading the scriptures that God is himself the standard for what is right and what is true. So as far as the definition goes, we could say that the righteousness of God means that he will always act in accordance with what is right, period. If it's helpful, think of righteousness as right doing, or also very closely related to the justice of God, the fact that God will do what is right and just in the universe. God will never do wrong. He will never act unjustly. He will never fail to do the right thing because he doesn't have enough information or because he just doesn't feel like it or doesn't have the ability He is a righteous God, and we're going to see that so clearly in this psalm this morning. So if you haven't done so, please turn to Psalm 7. We'll read together and pray and begin our time in the Word this morning. Psalm chapter 7. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. 
He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come this morning and bow ourselves before your word. We bow ourselves before you, the righteous judge, who will only do what is right. We thank you, Lord, that in your mercy towards us, in your grace towards us, you have given us the Bible. You've given us your word written down and preserved through the ages. And now we can come together, submit ourselves corporately to the word of God. And I ask that more than that, as individuals, as people that you have called to yourself, would each of us come under the authority of your word. It is our standard for what is right. It is our standard for what is true. Help us to conform to this, Father. As we go over these verses now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and do the work that only you can do. I do not have the wisdom in my own to make any sense of this, but you do. And I pray for your help in the preaching and in the listening. And God, would you be pleased with our worship today? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to look at this psalm in five sections this morning, five divisions of the text. But before we do that, I want you to notice something in the heading. In your Bible, right before verse 1, there should be a little sentence or two right there um, where it says, A Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush the Benjamite. Now, the headings or the superscriptions were not in every psalm, but when they appear there, it's because they were in the original text. It's part of the Hebrew that was carried through the generations and translated. So this isn't just something that the translators added to give a little bit of context. This was written by David. And the interesting thing here is though, even though David is clearly referencing a specific situation in his mind concerning the words of this person, nowhere in the Bible do we read of Cush the Benjaminite. Nowhere. Most commentators have their guesses and they think that either he was one of Saul's people when Saul was pursuing David, Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin and had people with him that were opposed to David, or during Absalom's uprising, the Benjaminites were stirred into activity against David. It could be one of those, but we don't know for sure. But the reason I want to draw attention to this is because Oftentimes, our tendency when we read specific instruction or specific uh, do this, don't do that kind of things, we tend to look at it in terms of how it's written, and that's normal. We do that, but I think when we look at something, we should try to see it not only specifically, but principially or in principle. So, for instance, if we knew the whole background of this, we knew exactly what was going on with Cush, the Benjaminite, and all these things, we could say, well, 
that's not really my situation. I don't, I'm not in that exact spot, so we'll, that can apply to somebody else. And I think in keeping it general, a lot of times the Lord is doing what is wise and good and keeping us from too narrowly looking at things and therefore being able to say, well, that's not really my, my thing. I'm not there. This doesn't apply to me. All of Scripture, Paul said, is breathed out by God, and that includes Psalm 7. And so I want to encourage us as we go through this this morning to think of things not only really specifically and narrowly, but in principle. How do we to respond to things, maybe not exactly like David's, but the Word of God is living and active and able to instruct and teach and exhort and rebuke, and that's what I'm praying happens this morning. That even though we don't know the specifics, that's not the important part. The important part is that we see what God would have us to see and apply it to our lives. So don't get thrown off by the names, by the wording, by the stuff that shows up in here. It is all for our good. And by the grace of God, I'm going to do my best this morning to help us see what's there. Now let's begin to look at these five sections of Psalm 7, starting with the first section, verses 1 and 2, David's prayer for refuge. David's prayer for refuge. David paints a pretty bleak picture right here in these first two verses. He's not just in mild discomfort. It's not that he was in an argument with one of the palace guards or something. He is in distress, and he is crying out to the Lord, and he knows that unless God intervenes, unless God steps in, there's no hope for him. We see that at the end of the second verse, that there would be none to deliver unless God steps in and rescues him. Therefore, this request for help from David takes on an almost desperate tone. David's acknowledgement that he has made the Lord his refuge. You see, he starts like this. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. This is the basis for his confidence to come to God and make this kind of request. We've seen this several times already in the book of Psalms, and we're going to see it as we continue to go through the Psalms, that the confidence that the psalmists have in God's ability to hear them, to answer prayers, to work in a specific situation, is because God is their refuge. God is their strength. David is not just calling randomly on God. He is calling on him because he has made God his refuge. Next, second section, look at verses 3 to 5 and see David's declaration of innocence. David's declaration of innocence. David stands before the Lord and says, as far as I can tell, I, I haven't done anything wrong here to deserve this kind of treatment, this kind of slander or pursuit. He's putting himself in God's hands and saying, yeah, if I've done this, if, if I'm the one at fault here, then let judgment fall to me. But he knows that he hasn't in this situation. And I think this is really important because David is not trying to blame shift here or draw the attention away from himself and then just get God to focus on the icky bad guys over here who are doing the mean stuff. He's saying, look, if, if I have done this, if I'm guilty, then let it fall to me. But David says he hasn't. And he opens himself up before God for this kind of scrutiny. Hebrews 4 says, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but 
everyone are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must we give an account to. This is what David's doing. He's not hiding anything. He's not holding anything back. But he is, as it were, exposed before the Lord and saying, examine me, look at me. I have not acted unjustly here or wrongly or done something to provoke this kind of thing. So God, come to my aid. Come to my rescue. David wants things to be dealt with rightly. And he understands that in order for justice to be done here in this situation, it must also be done here in this situation. There is no inconsistency with God, as though he might exercise his justice in this area and then just kind of overlook it over here. David says, no, if I'm at fault, then judge me. But if I'm not, come to my aid. This is David's declaration of innocence. Then we see in this next section, we'll spend a little bit more time here, the third section, David's request for God's righteous judgment. God's righteous judgment. I'm going to read this section again because there's some really uh, good stuff that we need to pull out. So follow along, starting in verse 6 of Psalm 7. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword and bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. We should note here in this section that when David asks the Lord to arise, to come to his aid, to deal with this situation, he's not asking God to do anything out of character. The fact that God is righteous and just means that David is totally in the right to ask that God would rise up against this. He's not asking God to violate his attributes. He's asking him to vindicate them. You're a righteous God? Then do what is right in this situation. The fact that God is righteous means that he will, like we said before, always do what is right. And in this case, what is right for God is to arise and come to the aid of his servant, David. Now, the language of this section of the Psalm 7 is very judicial, very courtroom-type language. David asks the Lord to arise and judge his enemies, and he wants everybody to know about it. You see this here in verse 7? Let all the world assemble, let all the peoples come together and see this judgment that God is going to dole out. You remember this, hopefully, from the Old Testament. As we read the history of the nation of Israel... We see so often that when God judges a nation, when he exercises his justice, it is to put the fear of him into everybody else. God does not just act quietly in a corner somewhere so that nobody can see what's going on. He is not embarrassed that he is a righteous judge, but he lays it out 
for all the world to see. And that is what David is calling for in verse 7. Now the language there at the end of 7 can be a little clunky if you have an ESV because it's a word-for-word translation. Another way to translate would be, let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you and over it rule on high. Okay, David is asking God to arise, judge the peoples, exercise your justice, and then he says, return, come back to your throne, come back to the judgment seat and declare your judgments on the people. So whether we read it as rule or whether we read it as return, the meaning is that God is the righteous judge of the world and he will rise to his throne and judge the peoples with justice and equity. In verse 8 then, David not only asks for the Lord to judge the peoples, but for him to judge David as well, which again goes with the earlier section of David's innocence or blamelessness in this situation. He's opening himself up for the same kind of judgment, the same examination as everybody else. Why does he do this? Same reason we saw before, because he has made the Lord his refuge. Verse 10, the Lord is the shield, the protection of David's. And I referenced this before, but there's something that David knew here that I think we really need to understand as well. And that is the fact that there is no partiality in God. There's no like split personality or ways that he deals with certain things and then suddenly will change and deal a totally different way. There is no partiality with God. If you read Romans 2, you can see this in the exercise of God's judgment in Romans 2, that it does not matter who you are. God deals the same. His standard is the same. His judgments are the same. Another way to talk about this is to say that God is consistent in his dealings. And I am so thankful for that. We talked, uh, the women have these Bible fellowship nights and I had the privilege of speaking there a couple weeks ago and we talked about the love of God and the wrath of God. And I had made the comment that it is so good and we are so blessed to know that God does not change. He's not fickle. He doesn't just act one way one day and then totally change the next. There is consistency in God, both in his love towards us and his care over us and his judgment and his hatred of sin. David can open himself up to the judgment of God because he knows God is a righteous judge who will do the right thing. He's not a crooked judge. God doesn't take Uh, bribes under the table. There's nothing else influencing God to make a decision or to pass a judgment down. He is righteous. He only does what is right. In verse 9, when David says, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and establish the righteous, he's not asking for two different actions from God. I want us to see this as the effect of of God's righteous judgment. When God exercises his righteousness, the effect is that it will both put an end to the wicked acts of men and establish the righteous. Many times in the Psalms we see language of battle or weaponry or God as a warrior fighting for his people and we see some of these weapons of his warfare. Verse 7 And after, 
if, if people don't repent, if we're getting into the last part of the section, God is going to wet his sword. That means sharpen it. You know what a wetting stone is for sharpening knives or axes or whatever? It's this figure of God getting ready, preparing to act, preparing to cast judgment. We see this in the first half of verse 9, these weapons of God's warfare in use. When David prays for the wicked to come to an end, that is the sword of the Lord, right? Taking care of it, casting judgment. When he prays for the righteous to be established, that is God as a shield, protecting the righteous, being a barrier between them and the wickedness of the people around them. And what is the basis of this judgment of God? Is God simply looking at the externals, the things in the world, the actions of men, and he sees what's going on and he goes, well, I, I don't like the way that that turned out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to judge that. What does the text say? The Lord sees the heart. He sees the inside motivations that are fueling this kind of action. God's judgment, his His measured and appropriate response to sin is not only because of the external things. It's not only because of what can be seen. It's the motives. It's what's inside a person. Jesus made this very clear. It's not what you do with your hands that contaminates us. It's what's in your heart. Which is why the promise in the prophet Ezekiel that God would give us a new heart is so encouraging. Because our hearts are wicked. This was Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. God sees the heart. He knows the mind. And there is nothing that can be hidden from him or any secret that can be withheld. It'll all be found out. It'll all be dealt with because God is righteous. Now I want to look at verse 11 before we move on to the fourth section of the psalm. Read verse 11 of of Psalm 7 with me. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. There are several places in the psalms where we see the psalmist cry out to God to act on their behalf. And the appeal is to the justice or the righteousness of God. Have you ever wondered why the psalmists don't appeal to the love of God? Why doesn't David say, God, I know you love me, you care for me, so express that love and and come and, and do something because you love me. Why doesn't he say it that way? Well, we have to back up several books to get the answer. In Exodus 34, God is calling Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. And he's telling them all these things that are going to happen. And Moses says, hang on. What am I supposed to tell the people when they say, who told you this? What, what, we're serving God? Who is God? They didn't know. So Moses says, tell me, who are you? What am I supposed to tell the people? And in Exodus 34... Verses 6 and 7, we have God's self-revelation. God telling Moses who he is. Listen as I read, Exodus 34, starting in verse 6. 
the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. So this is, this is what God is saying about God. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And if we stop there, we have a pretty manageable God. And we're thankful for all of those things. Yes, when I mess up, God forgives me. That's wonderful news, and it is, isn't it? But God doesn't stop there with his self-declaration. He doesn't stop there, and neither should we. He continues in verse 7. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. A God who only loves, a God who only overlooks, a God who only forgives and ignores justice is a God of our own making. That is not the God of the Bible. Now these are not opposing things in God. But there is a reason why when people are in crisis, when people are in trouble, they call on the righteous judgment of God to vindicate them. It's who God is. Yes, He is loving. Yes, He is kind. But He is righteous and will only ever do what is right. And that is what David is appealing to in Psalm 7. The righteousness of God demands that God uphold his own character and punish sin. Therefore, David appeals not only to the love of God, he has made God his refuge, he knows that God loves him, but he says, God, I need your righteousness, I need your justice, don't overlook this, deal with it. And because God is a righteous judge, he does deal with it. We should be eternally thankful that our God is a God of wrath. You ever think about that? Are you thankful that God punishes sin? This word indignation in verse 11 literally translates, means to express His wrath. God is a righteous judge and a God who expresses His wrath every day against sin. This is why I say that we should be so thankful because without the wrath of God, without his anger against sin, without his commitment to justice and punishing that, how could we ever hope to have justice in the world? How could we ever believe that God will come to our aid and meet us in our pain and know that he'll deal with it? How could we do that if he wasn't a God like this? but he is. We need to have a balanced view of God. If we err to either side, we miss it. Not only do we miss it, but it's very dangerous. The self-revelation of God through his word is that he is completely holy, loving, kind, merciful, wrathful against sin and a multitude of other things. Do not neglect the uncomfortable sides of God. They are critical to our understanding of who He is. God is a righteous judge. 
fourth section of the psalm, we see in verses 14 to 16, the judgment of the guilty. The judgment of the guilty. These verses are just one example of how the judgment of God sometimes falls. The wicked plan and scheme and devise all of these things, and God oftentimes frustrates their plans and turns it back on their head. And I was thinking about this, and I thought of a person in the Bible named Haman. Anyone remember Haman? You read the book of Esther. Haman was the advisor to King Ahasuerus, and he hated the Jewish people. And specifically, he hated a guy named Mordecai. And he devised this really crafty plan to get rid of all of the Jewish people in the kingdom, and especially Mordecai, whom he really did not like. And through a series of providential and ironic events, the very means that he established to get rid of Mordecai ended up being his own means of death. You can't read the Bible and not see irony. God takes the plans of the wicked and turns them over on their own head. This is just one of the ways that the judgment of God falls. Now the fifth and final section of the psalm we see in this last verse, in verse 17. The praise of the God of righteousness. The praise of the God of righteousness. Because David knows that God will act justly, that he will do the right thing, He can say, verse 17, I will give the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. The actions of God, the the visible demonstrations of God's righteous judgment are not meant to give us occasion to rejoice in the destruction of the wicked. Hear this. When we see the wicked fail, die, perish, that's not a reason for us to throw a party. Ezekiel 33, God says, Say to the people of Israel, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live, turn back, from your evil ways, for why would you die, O house of Israel? God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, and neither should we. It is okay to cry out to God and ask that he uphold his justice. But notice David's response is not skipping through the palace because he finally got his way. The response is giving praise to God. Do you pray for the people who oppose you? Now, we're not in a context where most of us have people, you know, trying to release wild animals into our house or something or try to get us. That's not where we live, most of us. Although I've been to some of your houses, and I wonder. But what we still deal with these feelings. We still deal with people, it feels like they're oppressing us. It feels like they're against us. It feels like there are things that are being set intentionally to trip us up. And do you pray for God to intervene and to work? 
David only asks God to exercise his justice when he is convinced of his innocence. Something to consider. Now, how do we apply a psalm like Psalm 7 right now? What are we to do with this? When we read Psalm 7 and see that God is a righteous judge who will punish sin, where does that leave you and I knowing that we have all sinned? You see, other religions of the world leave you right there. Other religions can point out the problem. We fall short. You can't measure up. But the only hope in every other system of the world is that you work hard enough and do enough good so that your good starts to outweigh the bad that you've done. That's the only thing that you can do. There is no redemption in the religions of the world. Only in Christ. Have you been led to believe that all you have to do is try a little harder, work a little better, do more good than you do bad? That's a lie. That is not the gospel of the Bible. That is the gospel of demons. Because Satan would love to trick us into thinking if we just work for it, we can do it. You can't. You can't. And neither can I. This is what makes the message of the Christian gospel so sweet. I'm going to read a verse for you. This could be the most important verse in all of the Bible. I say that every time I read a verse. <laughs> but listen to what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Hopefully you know this. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You are not righteous. You are a sinner. I am not righteous. I am a sinner. And knowing that God's standard is righteousness, knowing that God will judge sin, that just makes the message of the gospel that much better and that much sweeter to us. You don't have to work. You don't have to earn. Jesus worked. Jesus earned. And if you would just turn from sin... Lay down that pride and come to Jesus. He will clothe you with the righteousness of God. And when God looks at a person who has put their faith and trust in Jesus, he no longer sees the junk and the sin and the failure. He sees what Paul says, the righteousness of God, which is given to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. How do we apply this psalm? Knowing that God will judge sinners, we repent. And you believe the gospel. This is what Jesus preached. This is what all the apostles preached. This is the testimony of the entire Bible. There is one way to be shielded from the wrath of God, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you afraid that when you meet God, you'll be judged because of what you've done? 
God has to punish sin. He has to. He's just. But if we receive the gift of the righteousness of Jesus, that sin is dealt with on the cross and we are released and freed from that sin. Christ is the only way. There's a song that we sing here and it goes like this. Down at the cross where my Savior died. Down where for cleansing from sin I cried. There at the cross was the blood applied. Glory to his name. Come to the fountain so rich and sweet. Cast thy poor soul at the Savior's feet. Plunge in today and be made complete. Glory to his name. Let's pray. God, thank you for Psalm 7. Thank you for the revelation of your justice that you will punish sin. But thank you that you did not leave us there but you have provided a way of salvation from sin through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we can do to earn your favor. There is no amount of good works. There's no amount of rejecting what is wrong that will save us. Only faith in Jesus and his blood applied to us. Father, for every person In the hearing of my voice, I pray that the blood of Jesus would be applied to them through faith, that they would come to believe that you are the only hope we have in life or in death and would belong to you through faith. You're the only one who can do this work by your spirit, so please come. Please do this work. We're so weak and frail, and yet you in your strength can save us. So please do it. Please work through your word, Lord. And we give you all praise and all thanks for everything that you have done. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.